Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. It's been a little more than a month since we last spoke to Lucia Rubinelli, who is locked down in northern Italy, about the situation there. We thought it was time that we caught up. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me talk. Lucia is locked down in the mountains. The weather's not great, nor is the internet connection. So we apologise if it sounds like there's a bit of interference on the line. Hi Lucia. Hello. How how are you to start with? A, mu- a month on? No, I'm a bit bored at the moment, um, especially because we were hoping that um, the situation would ease a bit, especially because I'm in a small village in the Alps. But a week ago, we dared to go a bit further than allowed in our daily walk and the police caught us and it was not a, fa- a nice five minutes. So Wow. What were you threatened with? 800 euros. Yeah, a fine of 800 euros. So. And they knew you'd gone further because they'd been tracking you or you just were outside of the permitted zone? Yeah, no, we, no, no, no. We, they know who we are. They, it's a small village so, and we are not normal residents of the village. So, of course, they've taken good care in making sure that they know who is living here and where and since when we arrived and what we are doing, what is our car. So, yeah, no, we are we are definitely under surveillance at the moment. Well, last time we spoke, Italy was ahead of us in the UK and we were sort of talking to you because you were the future. And now we're kind of roughly in the same space, though obviously you're still further along. Um, there's a lot of talk in the UK about when and how this will be lifted. And then interesting public opinion surveys suggesting that people are really resistant to lifting various aspects of this. So for instance, there's a lot of opposition to letting schools go back. And we've seen something of that in France as well. Macron announced that schools will go back and many parents in particular are very angry about that. What's the mood around that in Italy? Do you have a feel for it? Yes. So um, the first thing to be said is that the lockdown is supposed to be lifted in a week. So Monday next week. So the 4th of May will be the first day without a full lockdown. So from May the 4th, things will slowly go back to normal, but schools will not reopen. So the debate about schools is a non-existent debate because the government has already said that they will not open before September. Of course, that has caused some concern, especially among parents who are supposed to go back to work from May 4th and who don't know where to leave their young kids. So this is where the debate has been taking place about um, schools in Italy. But most of the debate is just about how this phase two is supposed to look like. Because the government has not been very clear in explaining what the plan is to exit lockdown. So there's a lot of 
there's a lot of debate, but also a lot of quite bitter political fighting over the, the question of how it's going to happen. And when we last spoke, I was surprised, although I suppose with hindsight less surprised now that we've seen this effect in lots of different places, when you told us how popular the government was, how popular Conte was, is that still holding up as this debate starts to ramp up about actual choices? Because a month ago, there weren't really any choices. Is, is the government's popularity starting to wane? Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting question, because the answer is, I'm afraid, yes and no. So no, because if you look at polls, he's still scoring fairly well. He's still very popular. He's still considered to be, to have, you know, if you are in polls that ask how the crisis has been managed at the national level, people still seem to be happy with the government. Yes, because if you don't look at the polls and if you only look at the political debate, it definitely got much more heated. And there have been a series of low blows between the government and the opposition in the past two, three weeks. Uh, so we can really start seeing uh, how the future is going to look like. So once the acute phase of the emergency is over and the reopening starts, I don't think that the government will be able to enjoy such a high level of, of confidence from the population. Salvini has gone into full attack mode. So that will have its effects, I, I assume. And last time you said that the beginnings of real political contestation was Rome versus the regions. And it was regional politicians who were really pushing back against some of the national management of this. Is that still the case? Is, it, is there still a clear national versus local divide? Yes, it, it is even though there are a few differences, I think. So actually, a few days after we recorded the last episode, the president of the Veneto region, which is the region of Venice, which by far has been the region that dealt best with the virus. So they started having the virus exactly the same day as Lombardy. Probably they had fewer cases to start with, but they managed to flatten the curve, as we have learned to to say, very, very quickly. And they've managed not to overwhelm their hospitals. And indeed, that region is opening up this Monday. So they have autonomously decided to open up before the rest of the country without the assent of Rome. And one week after we recorded the last podcast, the president of that region said, as soon as this is over, my number one request will be autonomy. So th there, there is a clear political agenda of northern region going full on for uh, autonomy against Rome. Having said that, it needs to be said that the Lombardy region, which has always been the stronghold of the Northern League, it's the region where, from which Salvini comes, it's the region of Milan. So it's traditionally, historically, the strongest region in the country, the economically most flourishing region, etc. They did very, very badly in the crisis, and that became clear week after week after week. And their management, which is all, if you want, the top guys from the Northern League, Salvini's acolytes, they have done horribly. And this is clear, that's under the eyes of everybody at the moment. And uh, so there is, there has been growing opposition from the population inside the region against the League and in general the regional government. And that of course has weakened their claim to autonomy, yet at the same time has forced them to ramp up conflict against government, right? Because whatever failures are highlighted, the response of the regional government is to say, well, this is Rome's fault, it's not our fault. We wanted to do otherwise, but Rome didn't let us. 
So, and I think this is interesting because yes, the conflict with Rome continues, but the two main regions, the two most important northern regions, the two regions governed by the League, they reacted very differently. So one was very successful at managing the virus and wants autonomy on the basis of its success. The other failed at managing the virus and wants autonomy on the basis of its failure by blaming the failure on Rome. And autonomy here means what exactly? It's not, as it were, independence. No, no, it doesn't. No, the League has moved on from demanding full-on independence. But what autonomy means is mostly fiscal autonomy, which then would imply autonomous decision-making powers on everything that has to do with health, which was already the case to a great extent, and education, as well as, if, of course, if there's fiscal autonomy on how to spend the, the, the money you raise through taxation. So that's basically what they want. They want their money to stay in the region and they want to decide how to use it within the region. So I want to come on in a second to the, in a way, the big question, which is evolving Italian attitudes to Europe, the EU and the Euro, because I think a lot has moved on that since we last spoke. But just one more regional thing. There was a very interesting article in the New York Times, which did the thing that I did last time and you corrected me for making it a kind of north-south question, because that leaves out the middle. But that this is a really acute crisis for the south in a different way than it is for other parts of Italy. It's a sort of almost a trap on that account, because the lockdown is having devastating economic effects in a very poor region. There are very poor parts of the South that can't really withstand this. And at the same time, healthcare in those places is much weaker, much more vulnerable to being overwhelmed were the disease to take off. So there's a kind of dilemma for both politicians and populations in the South, which is more acute on this account than in the North. They can't tolerate the lockdown and they can't risk what happened in the North in terms of the virus happening in the South. Was that an accurate report that there is sort of in places like Sicily and elsewhere, there's something even more acute going on? Yes, I think that's accurate. And it is interesting, again, because it's a completely different crisis, right? So they have been, relatively speaking, spared by the virus. They had a few cases, but nothing, not even close to what happened in the North. So the health emergency touched them only to a limited extent. But what happens is that the lockdown, and in general, the global, the global lockdown, not only the national lockdown, will have very strong effects in terms of like the economic and social life of the South. But that's because these regions live off tourism. Not only of tourism, of course, but tourism and everything that that, that works around tourism, so restaurants, uh, museums, etc., accounts for a big chunk of their income. And of course, this will be gone for the foreseeable future. And on top of that, the other problem is that there is a widespread problem in the South, which is that many people work illegally. They do have jobs, but these jobs are not registered with the states, hence they do not pay taxes, hence they cannot receive state subsidies now that everything is shut down. Which, of course, has brought many families that would normally have regular income to poverty. And this became evident um, a couple of weeks after the lockdown started, when a few supermarkets were raided and assaulted in the south. One, I think, was in Palermo. Fortunately, these attacks and assaults have not uh, repeated themselves. They didn't happen again. But it is true that there is a widespread concern and anger coming from the south at the basically at the socioeconomic cost of the lockdown. And this is especially true if you think that 
on May 4th, when the lockdown is lifted, the North will reopen its industries, and although they will be struggling, work will start again. While in the South, that's, that's unlikely to happen. And if on top of all this, you add the fact that the South is quite heavily permeated by organized crime, there is a real sense of danger that this situation in which a big chunk of the southern population is not getting money from the government will accept money from organized crime. So this is really a breeding ground for even further development of organized crime, uh, which makes the situation particularly dangerous. And I think that going back to what we were saying earlier, it's becoming clearer and clearer that this is going to be a double constitutional crisis for Italy, in which it's not north versus south, but it's the center squeezed between the demands of the north and the demands of the south, which are diametrically opposed. So the north will be demanding more autonomy, which means, as I just said, keep the money it produces or it raises through taxation for itself. And the south will be demanding of Rome much more presence and much more redistribution of wealth. So the North will want to keep its money and the South will ask Rome to give it money. And of course, we, we are, it's not clear where Rome will get this money from if the North gets its autonomy. So it's really a, it will reveal a fundamental problem of Italian politics, which is a problem that was born with Italian unification, which is that the North the South and the Centre have never managed to really unify. And in moments of crisis, these differences become much more evident. Wow. So it is almost like the perfect storm. And then it is a reflection of the European question in microcosm, because the other thing that's going on here is the question of redistribution at the European level. And as I understand it, one thing that has really moved on since we last spoke is anger directed towards European institutions and then towards particular European countries that are seen to be either blocking aid for Italy or setting what look like outrageous terms, loading Italy up with more debt. I mean, that's the story of this week. The, you know, we've talked to Adam Tooze a lot about it on this podcast, the corona bonds question. I mean, there's clearly going to be aid and support for Italy in reconstruction, but the terms on which that is given and the sense in Italy that this is coming with lots and lots of strings attached, that is fueling Euroscepticism, as we'd call it, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Italy, I think that since 2011, the attitude of Italy towards the European Union has been getting worse and worse and worse. And of course, in 2011, when the Monti government was installed, uh, there was a sense of hopefulness in which, you know, Following EU rules would mean the end of corruption, the end of Berlusconi's uh, reckless spending. But then that sense of hopefulness that was sparked by 2011 <laughs> faded away. And instead, what you started getting was the result of austerity. So more and more Euroscepticism, more and more opposition to policies, especially financial and fiscal and economic policies coming from the EU. And this has just exploded now. Uh, it has exploded for, for obvious reasons, in the sense that what the EU is offering is clearly not good enough. And especially some of the rhetoric that came with this type of debates in Brussels was very damaging in terms of Italian opinion about the EU. Uh, famous sentences by Dutch ministers saying that we are just the Italians are just lazy and that of course we cannot deal with the crisis that's just because we never managed to save money 
this were of course picked up by the Eurosceptics and overblown out of proportion uh, to make a case against the EU. But apart from that, what happened is that the government itself went full on, at least in terms of rhetoric, against anything that the EU was proposing. So, of course, they wanted corona bonds, which did not happen. And they that Conte had a few press conferences or actually speeches to the nation in which he said, we are not going to allow a replay of the euro crisis. Italy this time will defend its honour. So his, his own tone was very aggressive towards the EU, which of course forced Salvini and Meloni, who's the leader of this other right-wing party, Eurosceptic right-wing party, even further to the populist right. So if, if the centre, if you want, if the, the government itself was using such a strong language against the EU, then they had to double down on that. And this started happening, I think, three weeks ago. And it became even more evident after the, the last meeting of Eurozone finance ministers, when they decided that the ESM would be among the packages offered by the European Union. And Salvini's response to that was to tweet in capital letters, so an entire tweet in capital letters, that the government had sold Italy to the sharks of Brussels and Berlin, which of course is not is not is not true, right? They didn't they didn't they didn't sign off for getting these loans. They just agreed that these loans would be available for countries who might want them. Then no doubt consensus in Italy is that we should not sign off to this proposal, but Salvini made it look like the government already did. And that sparked an incredibly bitter debate about what Italy is actually doing vis-à-vis the European Union that has not um, calmed down yet. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When Conte says we will not allow a rerun, of the Eurozone crisis, what, if anything, is the implied threat? So you can see what he's trying to resist, but what's he threatening to do if he doesn't get his way? Because as Helen would remind us, the constraint of being a Eurozone member means that your options are incredibly limited because I presume there is still no appetite in Italy for quitting the Euro, especially under these conditions. No, I don't think. Even though people have been more and more willing to mention it as a possibility. But I don't think there's any, I don't even think there's a contingency plan about that being a possibility in place at the moment. I think what Conte wanted to do was first just to protect himself from attacks from Salvini. So he didn't want to play the, you know, he didn't want to be Renzi. Renzi was very keen on saying that Italy should have its important role recognized in the EU, but then he accepted whatever came from Germany. And I think he didn't want to make that mistake again. Yet at the same time, I think that part of the reason why he raised the stakes so high is because he thought he had the support of Spain and France. 
Uh, and then, of course, Spain and France moved from supporting corona bonds to supporting the recovery fund. And that's what Conte did himself. So he changed agenda, if you want, in the last UCO meeting. And indeed, he stopped demanding corona bonds and he started demanding a recovery fund. Is it fair to say that within his government, therefore, he's closer to five star than he is to the payday? That, as it were, he's taken a side within that coalition? Yes, I mean, he was nominated by the five star, right? So he has been prime minister when the government was still expression of a majority that was composed of the five star and the league. And he was the guy, the five star guy that was accepted by the League in exchange for the Ministry of Interior Affairs for Salvini. So he's, he has always been partisan to the Five Star movement. Uh, and yes, he is closer to the Five Star because the PD seems to still be happy to go along with whatever the European Union offers to Italy. They really don't seem to have learned the lesson of 2011 in the sense that in 2011 they supported the installation of the Monti government and they they were a fundamental part in the type of discourse that pictured European rules as this sort of panacea against uh, corruption and against the lack of transparency and the uh, reckless spending of Berlusconi. And this is basically the playbook they are still using. Now, of course, the reckless Berlusconi type of argument is no longer available. It doesn't make sense. But they're not raising their voice against the European Union. And together, ironically, together with Berlusconi, they have been the only force in Parliament declaring themselves happy to vote in favour of accepting all this credit from the European Union. So looking ahead, the danger here is that the majority itself is going to be split over what to do uh, with the European Union, with the Five Star completely refusing and rejecting all help that comes in the form of more debt, while the PD very happy to embrace it. And is it therefore possible that we could get a rerun of 2011 and the government collapses in one way or another, and then the only option, assuming no one has an appetite at that point for an election, is another interim technocratic, I don't know, Draghi or whatever? I mean, could could it really repeat itself? Yes, I think I think this is absolutely likely. I don't want to make predictions, but I think oh, go on. I think that's likely. So of course yeah. So of course since Draghi wrote his op-ed on the Financial Times, there has been rumors going around of the President of the Republic preparing uh, a Draghi government. And of course so of course this cannot happen now. It doesn't make sense for it to happen now because you want this government to do the all the, the difficult work that comes with lockdown and then lifting the lockdown. But as soon as the crisis moves away from being an health crisis and will become an economic or socioeconomic crisis, the government is very likely to lose its consensus and the majority will split. The PD will not get along with the Five Star anymore. Yeah, it's likely that the government will collapse. Now, of course, I think that the what the President of the Republic doesn't want to do is to call a new election. And this is because the risk of calling a new election is right-wing government. It's not even a centre-right government. It's going to be a right government because between Salvini and Meloni, the leader of this um, Brothers of Italy party, they basically can have a majority or they might need a bit, a few votes from Berlusconi, but together they can, they can run the country. And this, this would be, of course, very risky. So I think that the... The plan here is really to let this government run its course and then have Draghi come in. 
creating a sort of technocratic government of national unity. So, Lucia, this is my last question to you. It, it feels like whenever we talk, there's this extraordinary range of contingencies. And this is preceding this crisis. Italian politics is so fascinating, but also so complex, so fragile. And yet there in the background is Salvini. He's in power, he's out of power, he's up, he's down, his people are competent, incompetent, but we're somehow inexorably moving towards it being impossible to resist whatever it is he represents. So even on that sequence, if you get the collapse, you get drug, you get technocracy on the old model, that does not withstand the populist tide. And in this case, why would it be any different? It's just a holding operation. Yes, absolutely. I think it would be another holding operation. Then, of course, I mean, I guess what the president of the Republic and the people managing this, organizing this, assuming that they are, in fact, organizing this, I think what they are hoping is that Draghi is a more political figure than Monty was, in the sense that he has more political capital, especially in, um, to be spent in Brussels. I don't think that's the case. I, don't, I think that's mostly delusional. And yes, I think this will be exactly a replay of 2011, just in a much worse socioeconomic context, because, of course, Italy is much weaker than it was in 2011 now, and it will be, I guess, for the foreseeable future. So, And, and the problem of all this, behind all of this, is that the more Salvini waits in the opposition, the stronger he gets. And on top of that, there is a parallel risk of the five-star movement being conquered, if you want, by this guy called Alessandro Di Battista, whom we mentioned, I think, in a previous podcast, who's the only other Italian politician who is happy to speak to cameras in wearing a hoodie. And in that sense, he's the left-wing version of Salvini. They are equally populist, they are equally anti-Europeanist. They, they equally re- reject normal politics. And he's pushing, he's pushing within the Five Star Movement to create a future for the movement that is not the type of, you know, nicely dressed with a tie, Di Maio. It's not the parliamentary part of the movement, but it's on the contrary, the much more revolutionary or movementist, if you say that in English, Mm. part of the movement. And that could be, again, the sort of the left-wing alter ego of Salvini. So I think we should talk again in a month, both (laughs) about that and also about what life under partially lifted lockdown is like. Yeah, very happy. I hope it's better. No police stopping you when you go for walks in the fields. I hope so. We'll tweet the link to the New York Times article I referenced there at tppodcast underscore. And as I say, we'll be speaking to Lucia again about post-lockdown life very soon. We're really excited that tomorrow, Monday, we launch our new podcast, Talking Politics, History of Ideas, in which I will be giving talks about the books that help make the political world we live in. The first two episodes are going to be going out on Talking Politics as well as Talking Politics History of Ideas. But if you want to get them all, and there'll be 12, you'll need to subscribe to a new podcast, Talking Politics History of Ideas. There's going to be one a day next week, and then two a week throughout May. At the end, it'll be a set. And if you want them, they'll all be in one place. So do please subscribe to Talking Politics, History of Ideas, starting tomorrow with Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan. But we will still be here every week as Talking Politics and in our regular slot this coming week, we are hoping to be talking to David Miliband. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 